Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hello darlings. Um, I'm recording this on the way home from dropping the kids at school, walking past the road. So Richard is going to be thrilled with me. Uh, he's the one who puts it all together. My husband, that is, editing it. And he says, record your intros and outros somewhere quiet. Nowhere windy. And it's like, yeah, but that's not where the mood takes me sometimes. Um, anyway, I hope you're all doing all right. Uh, I've been very quiet this week for a couple of reasons. One is kind of practical. I'm going on tour this weekend and I wanted to rest and hibernate a little so that I'm ready to, you know, go for it. We start with four shows on the trot, which is quite quite a lot of singing, so I want to feel in good health. But it's also slightly emotional, I think, because the news has been so awful. But I haven't really felt like doing much else other than sort of staying very low-key, watching things unfold, a fair bit of crying. I mean, it's just so heartbreaking. Oh, and we've really been through it, haven't we, the last few years? Anyway, it's made me, if I'm honest, feel a little bit peculiar about the fact I'm about to do this, you know, sparkly kitchen disco tour. But... I take heart from the fact, well, firstly, a lot of people bought tickets, so I have to, you know, give them a show. And also, I can't think of a single time in my life when music hasn't made me feel better, even if it's only in the here and now while it's on. 
So I'm just going to seek solace in it, really, and fill my heart up a little. So let's do it. Um, and this week's podcast is, well, wow, she's like a really amazing woman. Dr. Karen Gurney. Oh. Well, that's not cool. Doesn't he know I'm recording a podcast, Mr. Motorbike person? Um, yes, Dr. Karen Gurney, who calls herself sex doctor. But listen, she really, really knows her stuff. God, I love speaking to people where they really have all the information. It's just incredibly reassuring. She speaks a lot of sense. And it's funny because I've spoken to a sex coach before, uh, Pavali, who lives in Delhi. And, I, you know, it, when I was contacting Karen, I thought, you know, obviously it's interesting, but I thought also, I think I'm slightly confronting my own, well, slight prudishness, if I'm honest. It's really good to get better. Honestly, shove off. That's just too noisy, isn't it? Anyway, it's always good to get better at talking about sex, I think. I don't want to continue on the awkwardness, the Britishness, thanks. Keen to dispel it. Although, that being said, I think it now means I'm doing a little bit of what my mum did to me, which is being incredibly open with the kids, you know, age-appropriate way. And I don't mean my own personal intimate details, by the way. I just mean chatting them about stuff. And, of course... They are as mortified as I was when my mum used to do it with me. So, what goes around comes around. Anyway, you're going to love hearing from Karen and all her smart words when it comes to, I don't know, your own relationship with sex, particularly in uh, long-term monogamous relationships. It's her kind of main thing, I think, probably because those are the people that come and sit before her saying, what's wrong with us or what's wrong with me? And she's saying, well, actually... There's not as much wrong here as you might think. Sometimes it's about expectation and slightly changing the framework. And then, I'm trying to think of another phrase otherwise other than Bob's your uncle. (laughs) Maybe that is the right one. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking to you from this windy, windy place next to a noisy road. And when I get in, yes, of course, you know me so well. Cup of tea will await my little cold fingers. All right, darling, see you in a bit. Bye-bye. Well, firstly, I'm really excited um, to talk to you. I feel like there's a billion things we can talk about. <laughs> so I'm going to try not to take up all your time today. Um, but I want to start, there's a bit in your book where you say, if you sit next to me at a dinner party, then you're, you're in luck because I'm a really good person to sit next to at a dinner party. <laughs> so, so if true. I just sat next to you at a dinner party and I say, so oh, nice to meet you, what do you do? What do you say? Oh, gosh. I say I am a clinical psychologist specialising in people's sex lives. And that is everything from doing sex therapy with individuals and couples to doing sex research to speaking, writing and teaching about sex. And then what happens is people start asking questions about their own sex life. They start calling across the table to their partner and go, listen to this. <laughs> you were wrong. Um, sometimes arguments break out. I mean, all kinds oh, wow. happens. But it's never boring because, and I suppose that's why I'm in this field probably, sex is so fascinating. And even though I talk about it all day, every day, I never get bored talking about it. So although it does come up at dinner parties and then as soon as people find out, 
maybe this happens to you because you've got an interesting job as well. As soon as people find out what you do, they want to know everything. They ask me things like, what's the strangest thing people say? And, you know, all kinds of all questions of come out. Yeah, so, yeah, sit next to me. You'll be, you'll be fine. I know. And I can also, I mean, I've only, you know, we met like about five minutes ago, but I can already completely see why... If I went to see you and I needed some help with something, I would feel very comfortable opening up to you because you just have that way about you that I really feel like, you know. Oh, thank I, you. I can see that you'd be a very reassuring, warm presence. So that's lovely. And I think, I think actually, no, people would be much more excited to talk to you because I think when I say I'm a singer, it's a bit like, mm, you know, you have to kind of probe at that to see. But everybody has a relationship with sex. True. Everybody. And I suppose... Right, first we'll start with you. When did this become your day job? So I actually ended up in this field fairly accidentally. It was kind of one of those lucky accidents. Um, you know, when you, when you train to be a psychologist, you do, you know, an undergraduate degree, then a few years of working as an assistant psychologist, then you do a three-year doctorate, which is a bit like a medical doctorate where you rotate around specialties. And in your final year, you get to specialise in something. Uh, you get to pick something you've not done before or something you're interested in I didn't really know so I picked adolescent eating disorders because okay. I thought don't know anything about that so let's do that the person went off on mat leave they couldn't have me on that placement they were like oh at the 11th hour what do you think about sex and I was like sounds great sign me up thinking this sounds fun and interesting and it's close to where I live so that's all good and I did a year-long placement in um, sex, so sexual health, sexual problems, um, which is the same work I do now for the NHS, although this was like almost 20 years ago. And I absolutely loved it. I thought, what is there not to love about this? It's political. It strikes at the very heart of things that we feel kind of shame and fear and embarrassment about. And, you know, that's one of the real privileges of therapy, actually, is getting people to a place where they feel comfortable to talk about things that are difficult and there's not much more difficult to talk about than sex. Um, it's about, it kind of connects with marginalised groups. So there's, you know, in sexual health, we do a lot of work with HIV, with different aspects of sexual health, um, with LGBT populations. So, and you get to work with individuals and couples across the whole lifespan. So as a psychologist, usually you have to narrow it down a bit. Like I only work with teenagers or I only work with older people. I get to work with everybody. And I, I absolutely loved it. So, so that was it. I was sold from then on. And I've been doing it now for, like I say, almost 20 years, which makes me feel old. <laughs> um no, and it's experience it's, good. it's experience thank you <laughs> Sophie and I I do two different things so my my day job is split between managing sexual health um sexual problem services for the NHS which I do half the time and love because I love the NHS and then the rest of the time I have my own clinic which is called the Havelock Clinic which is a sexual problem service with doctors physiotherapists clinical psychologists based in London um but I guess my real passion is is about getting ideas about sex to help people's sex lives outside of the therapy room because I'd quite like less people to need to come and see me in the first place. And so I suppose the reason why I set up my Instagram account, the reason why I've done the book and other things like the TED Talk was about trying to get stuff that people need to know to stop them coming to therapy out into the mainstream and that's something I'm super passionate about. Yeah, I, I can see that and that's how I kind of came to know about you myself is through your Instagram account and then reading your book and um, 
So I know you've got another TED talk, haven't you, as well, on the horizon? In two weeks, and I'm trying not to think about that too much. <laughs> two weeks tomorrow or the next day, yeah, something like that. So it's quite um, reassuring that you're completely fine to talk about all aspects of sex, but public speaking is still a bit of a thing. <laughs> you know what? I both love it and then also curse the day I agreed to it at the same time because, you know, it's a big public arena at TED, isn't it? So yeah, got to get it right. I know, but also, it's, why do we always say yes to things that actually really scare you? It's like this, this bizarre challenge you set yourself over and over again. Why, why, why? <laughs> but sometimes you can't turn things down, can you? And this is one of those things I thought, uh, TED, London women, I can't turn that down. So. Yeah. Here we go. No, and it'll be great. And you've done it before. And so when you talk about the messages you're keen to get out, what, you know, with, with me here now, what are the sort of key things that you're really excited about getting outside the therapy room? Well, I guess, I mean, there are so, so many. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, you know, thinking about some of the, the main misconceptions and thinking about the things that affect people's sex lives directly, one of my biggest passions is about sex in long-term relationships. Um, I'm passionate about this because it's the number one reason people seek sex therapy. So people come to sex therapy mostly around differences in desire or differences in opinions about sex between them and a partner. That's the number one thing. And what's fascinating about that is that um, people often come to therapy thinking there's a problem with them or a problem with their relationship. But really the problem is about how we see sex and how we see desire and how we look after our sex lives in society, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that, that's one of my, my biggest passions and, and that's obviously the focus of the book. Yeah, so I suppose there's quite a lot to unravel with that really because as you say, you, you come at one point in your life and also I suppose you can have a couple that are really good at communicating in all other aspects of their life but actually articulating how you feel about sex, particularly in a long-term thing, because you might have to bring things up that maybe are as a sort of a bit of a rut you've got into. And I think in your book you talk yeah. about a set menu and saying it's really good to... You don't have to keep ordering the same thing all the time. Yes. You know, and get into that pattern. Yes, especially if you're going to eat at the same restaurant for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's best not to stick with the same food as well. Yes. Um, so, I mean, maybe we should dive into desire a little bit yeah. here because there's so much to say about this that's relevant to, to what you were just saying. I suppose we have a bit of an idea in our society that desire, so feeling like sex out of the blue, is something that just happens spontaneously if you love someone. And we're kind of signed up to that idea that um, there is such a thing as a sex drive, so you should just feel like it randomly mm. at various times and especially with someone you love and that's actually not true so we know that at the start of a relationship so for the first kind of you know couple of months to a year or maybe a tiny bit longer people do generally feel high levels of spontaneous desire so they feel like it out of the blue and then what tends to happen is that for women particularly but not exclusively women that starts to drop off after about a year, a year and a half. And feeling like it out of the blue is something that doesn't happen very often at all or ever for some women. And that isn't a problem with desire. So there's a lot of women, and I can guarantee there are people listening now, who don't ever feel like sex and think that's a problem with them. But it isn't. It's just a way that desire works in long-term relationships, which is that it tends to not be spontaneous anymore for m many people. And it kind of needs to be triggered. 
okay. which we'll come on to in a second. But because we've been socialised th- to this idea that we should just feel like it out of the blue, um, we feel a bit like it's our problem and it's quite hard to know how to fix it. Yeah. Because what do you do if you're just not feeling like it? What you tend to do is a partner comes near you and goes, oh, it's been ages, or tries to give you a kiss or whatever, and you're like, <gasps> no, because I'm not feeling like it. And so you start to kind of back off from any type of physical intimacy or anything that you think might give them the wrong idea. And of course, that just makes it harder and harder for desire to be triggered. There's nothing to trigger it. Yeah, and then nobody's feeling great in that situation because the other person as well is thinking, oh, they're not into me anymore. And yeah, yeah. All those things happening too. And there's so many intricacies within that whole dynamic that we could go into. You know, there's the fact that, well, how is the partner initiating it? And is that initiation actually something that you would respond to anyway? Or are they saying, it's been ages since we've had a shag, which, you know, isn't really going to trigger desire for anyone. So there's there's so much to go into there. But I think when it comes to desire, if I could change one thing in how people run their sex lives, it would be for people to understand how desire works. Because you can actually have desire feature as much as you want in your relationship. Okay. Um, just by understanding how it works and creating a relationship culture that will support it. But in actual fact, what happens is we do the opposite. We, we think of our sex lives as something which should just happen with no effort. And we put all of our effort into the other things we want to be good, like, I don't know, our fitness or our diet or our parenting skills or our work. We work quite hard at those things, don't we? We kind yeah. of don't really expect to... Uh, feel good about our bodies if we don't look after our body. True. We're also good at being anecdotal with that. You can speak to anybody about those things. Oh, I haven't been to the gym in ages, or I go do this three times a week, and all that, you know, whatever it is. Yes. We can communicate that stuff. We can, yeah. And you mentioned communication earlier, and I I think it's a really important part of it. Um, We don't do that with sex. We just kind of expect that without any effort or negotiation or um, investment, that we can be with the same person for a long time, um, for those people that are monogamous, and it be okay. Mm. And as you say, um, without being able to talk about it, that's a big challenge because how do you navigate the fact that you might see a drop in spontaneous desire and therefore need to negotiate how you're going to trigger it? How do you navigate your body changing You know, through life events, through having kids maybe, through... I don't know, physical health issues. How do you navigate the fact that for all of us, our interest in sex or the things we want to try sexually shift and kind of ebb and flow? So without being able to talk about it, you're kind of in a bit of a tricky place. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why um, we know from sex science that being able to talk about sex is probably the fundamental um, factor that can help you keep your sex life good over time. And as you say, we're not very used to that. We, we're not really socialised into talking about sex. No, and when you say talking about it, do you mean with your partner or do you mean even with your friends or anybody that you normally confide question. all the other stuff in? So talking about it with your partner, but what I'm interested in, I suppose, is when, when we look at how often we talk about it elsewhere, it kind of puts us at a disadvantage to talking with our partner because we're out of practice. Yeah. And, you know, even if you think about the words you might need to use, like sometimes, especially for for women, 
there aren't really any words to describe people's vulva or clitoris or vagina or whichever bits of their body they're talking about that they actually feel comfortable using because they're either yeah. really infantilizing, like foo-foo, or they're really kind of porny. And it can be quite hard even to have the words and that's connected to the fact we don't talk about it as a society. Um, and I suppose a bit like you were saying earlier around exercise, um, you don't really get to see and learn from other people's relationship with sex because it's all so private. Yeah. So um, one of the analogies I talk about in the book, because, you know, I use eating analogies for some reason all the time when I talk about <laughs> sex. It's, it's a safe space. It's a it? safe space. <laughs> Appetite <laughs> and hunger and all yeah, these exactly. things. And then feeling satisfied after. Good point, good point. I must add that one <laughs> it's in. It's a visceral thing, isn't it, when you're eating <laughs> it is, something? It is. <laughs> Anticipation. Yeah. But when we think about food you know you you might learn quite a lot from the media um you know you see adverts you read magazines about eating but you also get to see what your family do you get to talk about food with them you get to learn from how they have a relationship with that thing and talk about it and we just don't have that with sex because we're raised in a pretty much a sex negative culture in most parts of the western world um even worldwide. And what that means is that the only place we've got to learn is this idea that you shouldn't talk about it, that it's a risky thing to do, especially for women. It's more likely to end up in something bad happening and there's something good happening. Mm. Um, it's a bit shameful. You should try and keep it private. You probably should wait to do it for as long as possible. All those negative messages are how we're raised. Yeah, You can't talk about it. It's not okay. And the only way we can fill the gaps is with what we see on TV, um, what we read about in magazines, perhaps what we see in porn for people that watch porn. That is okay for eating because it's balanced out with everything else. You know, you see a Burger King advert, you're like, oh my God, that looks delicious. But you also know it's maybe not that good for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but with sex, you know, all you've got is what you see on TV. This is what sex is. And so you pretty much see the same representation over and over again yeah. of sex is um, this kind of, you know, lust or passion that comes from nowhere that both people somehow magically feel at exactly the same time. I mean, that just doesn't happen in real life. There's, all, you know, it's very difficult to have enough time in your week or month and both feel like it at exactly the same time. That in itself is a challenge. And then it happens in this way. There's this set menu of a bit of kissing, maybe, you know, a bit of touching, and then it's penetrative vaginal sex. Yeah. And then everyone orgasms at the same time in about two minutes after that. And that's how we learn. And we see, by and large, heterosexual sex as well, don't we? We do. We do. We don't see much variety. We don't see much queer sex. We don't see, we don't see any representations of couples kind of going do you think we should have sex or, like, do the dishes? <laughs> and one of them going, I don't know, like, both would be good, like, which will we regret more tomorrow? <laughs> and, then, and then getting into it, and then their arousal and passion and desire mm. building. That's actually more of a realistic representation of sex in long-term relationships. But when you see that kind of sex on TV, it's always positioned as there's a bit of a problem for this couple's sex life because, look, they're really having to you know, That's so true. work on desire. But yeah. it's actually just how desire works. It mm. needs a bit of nurturing. So you said at the beginning of that that if there's a way to, 
I'm trying to remember your phrasing, sort of have a more of a, a culture of, of desire and how yes. that might be rectified. So what's the sort of good suggestions for that? Yes. So I think first, just knowing that desire will often need to be triggered and it's often not there to start off with. Thinking about the relationship context and the personal context within you that support that. So we all know there are times we feel more or less connected to our sexuality. Um, we all know that there are times when our relationship um, and how things are feeling between us might nurture or extinguish. So it's not just about what's happening within us, but also, you know, the whole picture. So thinking about those contexts is important. But knowing that desire can be triggered means all we really need to do is create the context to trigger it. So there's two things here. One is I talk about something called sexual currency. So um, when I talk about sexual currency, I mean everything that we do with a partner that is about relating to them sexually that isn't a sexual act. So flirting, passionate kissing, like sex texts, a bit of a bum grab, a bit of a wink, you know, telling them they look hot today, um, being naked together, all of that is what I call sexual currency. Um, sexual currency is really high at the start of a relationship. And if you look at people who've just got together, you can almost just see it kind of oozing out of them. All of the eye gazing, all of the touching, all of the kissing, it's kind of annoying, but <laughs> you can see it, can't you? Yeah. What happens is we're with someone a longer amount of time is that that kind of, that way of relating to them gets watered down. And there are all these other ways that we start relating to them as co-parents, yeah. as flatmates. Well, so the first one isn't quite sustainable. You can't it's really, not, no. And can't you can't get much else done when... You can't get much else done. It's like being a little bit mad when you're in that phase. <laughs> and everyone would hate you because you'd be really annoying. Because <laughs> at a dinner party, you'd just be that couple that everyone would go, for God's sake, get rude. Yeah, yeah. So you, it's not sustainable, but... It gets watered down by the, all these other ways that we start to relate to each other. You know, the texts become like, can you pick up bin bags rather than I can't wait to see you tonight. You know, all of that. Yeah. So one of the things we need to do is to pay attention to the culture of our relationship and see whether sexual currency has really been dampened. And so questions I often ask couples in relation to this are, um, do you passionately kiss like outside of sex? You know, is that something that ever happens? It usually falls off the agenda in long-term relationships. And it's a very quick and easy way of increasing sexual currency is to bring that back with a kind of agreement and understanding that that's not about that going anywhere. It's not mm -hmm. an initiation of sex. It's about feeling like a sexual couple. You know, can you talk about sex easily? Can you watch a sex scene on TV and say, you know, that bit was hot, do you think, you know? Should we try that? Like those types of things. Um, what tends to happen in long-term relationships is that sexual currency falls and then people start to feel as though it's hard to initiate sex because you haven't said a sexual word to each other for like three weeks and it's hard to know how to initiate it. But actually what we need is... Um, a culture of high sexual currency and not really worrying about how much sex we have because sexual currency is a little bit like a kind of scaffolding that helps you move from like putting the dishes away mm. into taking it further should you want to but it provides a very easy transition you know if, if you have those moments throughout the day where you're seeing each other as sexual people yeah um where you're feeling desired by the other person where you're having a bit of a trigger for your desire 
you won't always be able to act on it because, you know, you've got to take the kids to school or you've got work things on your mind, but you'll feel desired. You'll yeah. feel connected sexually. It makes it easier, you know, a couple of hours later to get back into that if one of one or both of you wants to take it take it a bit further. So sexual currency is is really important. Um and that's one of the key ways that people can really make a change and get their sex lives back on track. There are so many more, but I think that's that's one of the ones that I think can make the most difference with the smallest. Yeah, change. and I can see that it sort of shifts the emphasis as well because uh, it stops it all being just about the act and makes it just sort of more part of how you interact with each other and seeing yes. each other in 360 and it yes. not being... Because if you're in the first stage you were talking about where someone's feeling that their desire's gone, so suddenly it's a bit like, oh, God, here they come, and it's going to be... They're going to want to have sex, and I, I'm really not in the mood, and how do I even broach yeah. that? But it kind of just takes them back to being two people where it's like actually I just I'm really attracted to you and you look really lovely today or yeah you know, as you say like a cheeky text or just something flirty yes and it, really easily fall by the wayside can't it in long term it really can and it's normal for it too so people shouldn't worry if that's what's happening for them but it's like with any culture it's in it's possible to change it mm. just by making a very small change in how you do things you can shift a culture um and what you were saying there about if you don't have a, have that kind of sexual currency between you very often, as soon as someone does say, actually, you look really great today, or as soon as someone does approach you and kiss you in that way that's a bit more passionate than a peck on the lips when they go to work or whatever, you think, pressure. You think, they're expecting something now. And, and pressure is a massive desire killer. Yeah. So it's almost like you need the opposite. You need lots of... Lots of times where your kind of desire might be triggered or you may feel like you're, si you're being seen in a sexual way or you're seeing them in a sexual way without pressure for it to go anywhere, not the other way around. Mm. But you just made me think of something else then when you were saying about how important that can be, which is that sometimes we think about um, the reasons we have sex as being about kind of scratching this physical itch mm -hmm. of this sex drive that we think is there like hunger so it needs kind of satiating but actually the reasons that all of us are motivated to have sex are usually more psychological or relational so for example we want to feel attractive or mm. desired or we want stress relief or we want to feel connected to that person in a different way than a co-parent or we want to feel our relationships good and strong and we feel like if we're having sex then it is there's a bit of a myth there, although there kind of isn't. It is also quite important. <laughs> so what's interesting about sexual currency, um, and I love when I get couples to do this in therapy because it completely changes everything because what they say is, actually, I need sex less now we're doing this because the reason I'm motivated to have sex is because I want to know that she still finds me attractive. I, in my life, want to feel an attractive person I want to feel desired it's mm. important for all of us isn't it yeah and when she grabs me just before I leave for work and gives me a passionate kiss I feel desired and I feel our relationship is strong and I go to work with that bit of a um what's the phrase I was gonna say kick in my step that's not the phrase you know what I mean <laughs> like a spring in my step <laughs> spring in my step thank you uh, mixed metaphors um and and actually that often meets quite a lot of our sexual needs so 
Um, so yeah, it's about turning how we see things on their head, I guess. Yeah. Understanding how desire works and then almost doing the opposite of what we think we should do. Yeah. Guys, blooming fascinating. I mean, we're a complicated bunch, aren't we? <laughs> and I can totally see why it's like kind of endless. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I love the fact that you're keen to sort of, you know, maybe reduce the number of people that need the therapy. But firstly, I think, I applaud anybody that goes actually to therapy because I think probably mm-hmm. for a lot of those couples, that's a massive deal, isn't it? Taking it out yeah. of the bedroom and sharing those details with someone and recognising there's a problem. They're already kind of setting themselves up quite well to be able to resolve them if they've left them, you know, they're open to that. Yeah, absolutely. But also, you are dealing here with the British, you know. <laughs> we're not really known for... <laughs> I mean, we're a pretty repressed nation and a, a little bit bizarre, really, because it's not hard to find, um, you know, sex is well represented. It is. But not always in the way that's helpful. And, you know, you've spoken a lot in your book about all this and it's fascinating. I was saying before we started recording about how I've been reading it on the tube sometimes and I feel I feel like I look like an academic, <laughs> which is a very impressive achievement for a book that's, you know, fundamentally about sex lives. But, you know, there's there's so much information there about the science and the politics behind how we're wired. Mm-hmm. And for all our oppression, there's also this massive um, survey that gets done in the UK. For, That's right. Which is really incre- gives you a massive resource for how, what's actually going on with people. Yes, so uh, the NatSAL survey um, is, is an incredible piece of sex research that happens every 10 years um, in the UK. And the data that comes out of that about the sex lives of the UK is fascinating and is also um, mirrored by lots of other sex research that happens in other parts of the Western world as well. So it's not just us, but it's certainly trends that we see. And, you know, you were saying about things that people bring to therapy and, and you're right, it's an incredible privilege to be part of somebody's journey or a couple's journey when they're bringing something that feels so personal it's also one of the reasons I love sex therapy is because things are usually very easy to resolve in a quick time frame and it's a real joy to see that change for something that's felt so difficult um, for a couple. But often the things that people bring are things like, we're not having sex enough. And I am always so fascinated about how often people feel like they should be having sex because, as you say, sex is everywhere but it's also nowhere. And you don't really get that information about what's normal. And people are really 
obsessed with how often they're having sex and they'll say you know I feel like we should be having sex a couple of times a week and I'm like who has time to have sex I and mean, some people do right and and that's all good for them but that's not what we know from sex uh, research about how often people in the UK are having sex we know that it's much more likely to be um, something like uh, three times a month and if you're in the kind of 35 to 45 year old age bracket it's more likely to be twice a month but then saying that there's a a third of people um, who haven't had sex at all in the last month. So it's much more common to not be having sex that regularly. You know, I say all of this because it's good to reassure people if they're worried that they want to be having more sex. But also, frequency is such a massive red herring and just something we shouldn't be focusing on at all because it's actually worse for your desire to be having regular sex that isn't good than it is to be having sex once a year that's everything mm. um what we should be focusing on is is the sex we're having the type of sex that makes us want to come back for more because you know as humans we're kind of rewarded when things are good we obviously want to do more of them and when they're not so good we want to do less of them and that happens with desire as well so having sex because someone else wants to do it more and feeling that it's not necessarily what you want to be doing, but you're going along with it for someone else's needs, not getting the pleasure you want from it, all of those things will um, deplete desire over time just by that process of kind of negative reinforcement. Yeah, it's, it's just, you're right, it's like endlessly fascinating. And, <laughs> and going back, when did people start to form their relationship with sex because I suppose mm. initially people might think it's when you actually start being sexually active but presumably there's many many strands that have start well before that I love that question and um it's such an important question because I think we've had for a long idea this concept that you're kind of not a sexual person until you have sex for the first time. And, you know, I don't use the word virginity. It's just not a, a useful word in our vocabulary. Um, it just maintains an idea of one type of sex is more important than another and you're kind of giving something away and there's all kinds of problems with That's it. so true. Um, I prefer to use like sexual debut uh, as an idea that you're kind of, you know, bursting onto the scene wow. with excitement and vigour. <laughs> That's a lot more fun. <laughs> it's a lot more fun, isn't it? Um, like losing your virginity is just so negative. Like you're walking through a big load. And for your sexual debut. I love that. Surrounded by balloons. Exactly, yeah. Um, But actually, you know, we, our relationship with our sexuality is there from when we're very, very small. You know, children, um, you know, we see them um, being able to enjoy touch to their bodies. It doesn't have to be, it's not a, a negative thing. We see them being inquisitive about their genitals. We, they ask questions about it. Um, well, it's kind of always there. It's only that, you know, it comes to puberty for us to start kind of having that sexual motivation and sexual interest. But I, I like the idea of people thinking about our relationship with our sexuality starting much younger when we learn about bodies and when we learn about um, autonomy, bodily autonomy, and when we learn about things like pleasure and consent, which I think all of us who are parents need to start talking about much earlier than we currently do because really they're the foundations for good sex later on like assertiveness and bodily autonomy being able to say no and not just be polite because you know go and give uncle bob a hug 
because he's saying bye and the kid doesn't really want to give Uncle Bob a hug. That's a very early message that it's more important for you to be polite and feel uncomfortable in your own body than it is for you to assert yourself. That's a fundamental message that is challenging when you start becoming sexually active. You know, that someone else's wants are more important than your own bodily comfort. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? It's a really big one. So, you know, that's part of our early learning about sex. Um, Obviously, kind of all the, the messages we give around consent, around, you know, things like tickling or things like, you know, if someone says no, those they're all early learnings too. Um, but also from when we start talking about sex with, with children and young people, just putting across an idea that it isn't something that's shameful, it's something that's fun, it's something you can look forward to, it's something you can enjoy. Um, so I think our, our relationship with sex starts then. Um, and I think it's really good to move away from a definition of becoming sexual as being around this kind of old idea of virginity and actually thinking, you know, if everyone does this for themselves now, if they're listening, what are the kind of key moments in your sexual development that should be celebrated? So things like when you first had an orgasm alone or perhaps when you first had an orgasm with someone else or the first time you really felt completely into somebody sexually or the best sex of your life. Like if you plotted your sexual development, these are the important milestones on there not the first time that you had penis and vagina sex which may have not been that pleasurable or interesting for you um so yeah i think it's a lifelong journey and i think it doesn't just stop when we reach adulthood i think it's a something we can kind of grow and evolve into and really our relationship culture needs to be able to support that by allowing growth and that's where the communication comes in yeah, and I think we are getting better. I certainly feel like um, the language that uh, like teenagers have now is far better and more nuanced than it was when I was that age about about all the grey areas of consent and how you feel about things and be able to specify what works for you and be encouraged to be empowered that way. I just don't feel like those were conversations we had when we were having our sex education. No, I certainly didn't. Um... I was no. taught about abortions by a nun. She she didn't seem very pro. <laughs> no. And that's the thing, isn't it? This this you know socialising young people into thinking that sex is basically something scary where something bad can happen, either to your reputation, an unexpected pregnancy, STI. You know, this it's just all bad stuff. That's so true. And actually, what we need to be saying to young people is, sex is actually really great, and you should enjoy it. And it should feel life affirming. And yes, there are things to be aware of and to, you know, make sure you guard against. But once that's taken care of, once you know about contraception, once you know about safer sex, whatever else it might be, go and enjoy it and expect it to be pleasurable. Because we're not really teaching young... Well, when we were younger, perhaps, we didn't really teach young people to expect pleasure from sex. It wasn't talked about, you know. Mm. The, The number of women that I work with who are only now in their 20s or 30s or sometimes 40s and 50s learning about the clitoris as being like the primary source of sexual pleasure and orgasm for women. You know, even even now, people don't know that. Um, yeah, which there's is still a lot of education to happen, isn't surprising. there? Yeah, and I suppose it's just that thing of... Um, probably for a lot of people, they feel like their sex education was sort of formed when they were at that time in their life, like adolescence or something, and then maybe haven't really 
brought it forward since then. Things mm. can kind of get crystallised, can't they, in your ways of thinking about things. But, I mean, you're a very good example of how there's always room to to change your relationship with something. And if you've sort mm-hmm. of alluded to the fact that your upbringing and the education from school and maybe the way your parents spoke about sex, I don't mm-hmm. know, it's, it was very different to the way you're raising your kids. That's a sign that you can you can reset things. Yes, you can. <laughs> and it's okay to feel a little bit uncomfortable as well, you know, because we've all been socialised into doing it differently. But if you're someone who wants to parent your kids differently in, in this... and. I should say that all of the evidence says that the more sex education kids get, the more likely they are to be um, what we call sexually competent, which is a funny way of saying it, but when they have their sexual debut, the more likely to feel in control, to be able to use adequate contraception, to not feel pressured into it. So there's a direct correlation between good sex education and that. And interestingly, there's a direct correlation between the first you know, sexual debuts that you had with somebody else and sexual problems later on. Oh, wow. So we know that if we set up young people from the start to have good early sexual experiences, they'll have less sexual problems later on down the line that they might end up coming to see me for. Yeah, that um, makes sense. We've got a bit of a way to go till we get to, to that. But if you're someone who wants that for your children, then it's okay also to feel a little bit uncomfortable yourself because you were raised differently. So, you know making sure that your children know uh, what the word vulva means and that, you know, vagina isn't a good word to describe women's entire um, genitals. Actually, it's obviously just the um, vaginal opening and the, the tube up to the cervix. But the, the vulva is important. It's important to talk about pleasure and to not shy away from conversations about sex, to just see sex as just, yeah, something fun that people do. Yeah. And when you're older, you'll enjoy it too. Yeah, it's funny because when I first became a mum, you know, you do think about, you know, head to their adult life and what you need to equip them with. And I surprised myself by thinking, I actually do, I do want my kids to have a really happy, healthy sex life. I want them to enjoy Mm -hmm. all that. I want them to feel good in themselves. I want them to, you know, to want the other person they're with to be having a nice time. Yes. So those things that, I I didn't think it would be quite as instinctive. I thought it might be something that I had to sort of think about a bit more, but... You just, you just want people to feel good about themselves in that way. And so you now, you've got two kids who are nearly like Jones boy snaps with my kids. So you've yes. got a five-year-old. And a nine-year-old. And a nine-year-old. Yes. I've got a nine-year-old as well. You've got two little boys. Yes. Um, so, you know, what was happening in your life when you had your first? Were you working at the places you're working now? Oh, yeah. Um, what was happening? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was working in the NHS in sexual problems, yes, and it wasn't until I had my second that I started the Havelock Clinic and and started some other things like the Instagram and the book so I went on a slightly different path um so yeah I've, I've always been working in this field since I had them and it's you know it's a, a really interesting journey isn't it and I don't mm. know if you connect with this but having boys as well you feel a real responsibility to make sure that you're raising boys that understand um basic concepts around things like consent and um, understanding kind of gender equality when it comes to sex. Yeah. But it's all the it's all the nuance there as well for me. So, you know, they're very good at anatomy. Um, we've got sex books all over the house, models of the clitoris. We've got all kinds of things, you know, that are just there because of the work that me and my partner both do. Um, 
So they're very relaxed. Um, and sometimes it still catches me off guard. So even though I do this for a job and I very much want that for them, I can remember being in the changing rooms at the local swimming pool when I think my eldest was only a couple of years old, like maybe three or four or something, I can't remember. And he shouted at the top of his voice. He was like, Mummy, is that your vulva? Really loud. I was like, yes. He's like, can I touch it? I was like, no. <laughs> um, but I remember simultaneously thinking, this is a great, great thing, because um, I don't think I knew that word until I was, you know, probably in my 20s, until I started working in this field. Um, but also just mortified that he shouted that out in the swimming pool. So, you know, you're, we're not immune. No, no I, can, I can sort of semi-match that with... Um, I, was, I always wanted my... Um, kids to have a you know a very sort of frank healthy relationship with you know to talk about sex and how babies are made you know age appropriate but you know I yes. wanted them to feel good about it all but I slightly jumped the gun with um a book that I bought when my uh my eldest must have been about three or four called Where Willie Went which was all about um a little sperm called Willie which actually thinking over was actually quite <laughs> confusing that they called the sperm that but anyway and <laughs> Willie was really good at um at swimming races and he lived in in this world that was all like had like a cafe and a cinema and all, all located safely <laughs> in the testicles but um yeah and uh and then happily Willie does win the race and and a, a baby girl it was born sometime later but um we were walking through the park and uh <laughs> And, uh, and and he said, um, will there be a fun fair in my bum for all the sperm when I'm big? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. What a great um, image. And I think he was like, have you, have you, are you having a baby now? And I said, no, you, know, you never know. It might be some of daddy's sperm in there. And it's just, I was thinking, oh, maybe I've, maybe I've kind of uh, run before I can walk with no, this I stuff. I love that. I love that. <laughs> it's great. It's really great. Um, but it's, it's it, it, you know, knowledge is such a powerful thing and it's so good for them to be able to do that. But I suppose as well, it's going to be interesting for you because a lot of other households are not just going to be dealing with that in the same way. So if they have play dates and stuff, do they kind of, are the kids curious? I suppose they don't really think, they're still a bit little, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, they, they, they're quite happy to be vocal with their friends about things. Sometimes we're like, oh, I hope that goes down okay when they tell people facts about various things. All age appropriate, but yeah, I mean, I'm predominantly concerned about them and want them to go into their teens understanding enough so that they can have a critical eye on the things that they will never inevitably get exposed to. So, you know, we know that young people in the UK now, because of mobile phone usage in teenagers and in schools, see porn at a very young age, like mainstream free porn, which is obviously, you know, porn is not the enemy by any stretch. Um, but a lot of the mainstream of free porn can be quite misogynistic and can be quite unethical in the way it's produced. Um, that... I am not prepared for them to have that as their sex education. I want them to see that and go, that's not what sex is. That's mm. just a visual representation. That's people acting something in a particular way. And I think that's the danger. If we don't provide good enough sex education at home, they will see that at some point and they'll think that's what sex is mm. um, in the absence of any other conversation about it. So. so what is a good way of having good sex education in the home then as they're growing up? So I think just those kind of constant, consistent, ongoing conversations about the key aspects, so pleasure, autonomy, um, consent, uh, bodies, labelling body parts, and just what they witness between us in terms of how we talk about it, how mm. we react when it comes on TV, how they see, it, see us interacting 
with our partner, for example, um, what books are lying around, how we talk about sex as they get a bit older, not having anything off limits. And I think, and this is the case with social media generally, I think just, you know, there's there's quite strong evidence now that raising, especially thinking about early teens and later teens, raising them with a really good sense of media literacy, which also extends to porn literacy and social media literacy. So what you see is not reality. And this, let's talk about this film, like, like um, you know, the, all the driving films that you see or like James Bond or whatever it is. Great entertainment. But like, if that happened in real life, you know, yeah, would they really survive <laughs> all of these different disasters that keep happening? And it's the same with porn, trying to raise them to have a critical eye and say, okay, you know, this is just a form of entertainment, but that person actually is acting. That person is stopping and starting so they can maintain an erection for longer and taking Viagra. That person doesn't actually look as happy with the scenario as they should. Um, all of those you're sort of watching the porn with no no we definitely (laughs) don't do that imagine having any of these chats with my 13 year old and i know the face he's pulling it's a kind of yeah i mean i mean he might not want to have those chats there's some really good um websites (laughs) and resources out there (laughs) as well um there's a really good um site for young people called uh bish bish bish.uk i think it is Um, which is specially for young people, kind of over 14. Um, And the idea is that it's got everything you need to know about sex, about porn, about bodies, about consent, about what makes a good relationship. There's some great books out there as well. Um, And there's lots of stuff and I can put it in the notes. That's a great idea. I'll do that. And some good resources for parents. But I think if we, you know, we don't have to talk with them about, (laughs) let's definitely not watch porn together. Let's just be really (laughs) clear about that. That is not good. <laughs> not okay. But if we if we raise them... i their therapy session now. I should like for like 15 years' time. <laughs> do that, do that. But if, we, if we've already raised them with a bit of a critical eye mm. and if they know enough about sex to know that that's not what sex is, they'll watch it with that lens. They'll see it, of yeah. course they will, but they'll go, oh, she doesn't really look like she's enjoying that or this is yeah. showing a particular type of sex that I'm not sure all people will want tricky isn't it because that's I think that happens and you know you're right you have to remember as a parent that you don't have to be all things to all people you're one voice but there's also support out there from lots of areas so yeah trying to walk alongside them with all of that stuff is really good and Um, I think fundamentally just being for them to know that you're always a place they can come and talk yes and that you won't go oh my gosh you've seen porn that's terrible I never want you to watch that again that actually want to say you know, there's loads of stuff on the internet. Let's talk about it. Like some of it is really good and might make you feel good. Some of it you may see and it might not make you feel good. But I'll never be angry with you. You can always come to me. Yeah, Sometimes and that's lovely that for everything, enough. really, isn't it? I yeah. think for all the stuff we have to navigate. I mean, I I had quite a early introduction to that bit, really, with with one of mine, where he and a friend had been looking up. I think he'd googled something like hot girl boobs but I think he was either nine or ten like little and um so firstly it's quite alarming how quickly that moves away from just boobs yes um even with the you know something on your yeah pretend to controls on yeah but secondly um it meant that he'd seen lots and lots of of naked boobs and I was talking to him about it and it was quite tricky because I was trying to say to him that just because you've seen that lady's breasts doesn't mean that every woman you know 
has their breasts on the internet if you know what to search yes. for. And also that you're now allowed to see that from anybody. Yes. It was really tricky, actually, because I thought that was my first thing of trying to educate what what porn is about, really. Yeah, sounds it's, like you managed it really well. Well, I'm, I'm raised by... My mum is a real communicator. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a little bit too much, which is why I'm, <laughs> when you were saying about the you know, aspects of the conversation, I think keeping open is really important, but I know that sometimes my mum would say things to me that I found were fur- actually further ahead than I was yeah, yeah. ready for, and that, that used to freak me out a little bit too. Yes. And I'm trying to be better at that myself. It's yes. hard, actually, to navigate that because you think, I want to have you armed with it, and, oh, I've seen that you've, you know, you've, uh, this is in your world, or you've seen that, and actually... You can, you can adult a, a situation that they actually haven't taken picked up on all those nuances of yet. Yeah, it's or maybe very they gradual. Have. So you have to sort of just leave the door open and say, um, "What what did you think about that? Was there yeah. anything you want to ask me about exactly. what you just saw?" Yeah, because they might just go, "Oh no, fine, thing. Yeah. I didn't notice." And you know, you, and it's okay that you're curious about that. Is there anything yeah. you want to ask me about it? Exactly. Um, and you can always ask me about these things. But you're right. Sometimes you know. I think we forget sometimes as adults that kids often they're often quite happy with a basic explanation of something um, and they don't ask they ask more when they need to ask more yeah and they just need to know they can ask more yeah Um, and I remember when my eldest asked me something about what sex meant because obviously sees the word written a lot around our house (laughs) hears it a lot in phone calls and stuff Um, and I said it's just a fun thing that adults do and when you're older, you'll enjoy it too. It's something you do with your body. And yeah. he didn't ask anything else. And I was prepared to go into, you know, it can be all these different things and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but actually that was kind of all he wanted to know is a basic definition of the yeah. word at that stage. Yeah, and I guess, I know, it sounds like we're both people that like to talk with, to our children about all things. Yes. And sometimes you can get a bit overexcited, I think, with those topics and think, oh, I've been waiting for this. Right, let's talk about it. And <laughs> they're thinking, go. oh my God, please stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally bored sideways and yeah. I've, I've, st- I've stopped listening ages ago and I've glazed over. Um, what advice do you give people whose children might have walked in on them when they're having sex, as, like for the parents? Well, how do you handle that? Well, I guess it's kind of, there's a couple of things there, isn't there? There's a, there's a background kind of issue of how do we do privacy as a family, which is actually quite useful to build in. Mm. So the idea is that people want privacy for different things mm-hmm. and that we might respect that and think about like knocking. But obviously sometimes kids are too young and they won't necessarily think about that. Um, I think it's really okay to be like, Oh, you know, mummy and daddy or mummy and mummy or whoever else um, were just having a nice time together. Depends, depends how old the kid is, you know? Yeah, and no, um, I think, I mean, I, I actually, no, luckily, touch wood and all that, I, miraculously, I haven't found myself in that situation, which I think with so many children, you probably would. But <laughs> the hat on the door seems to work. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> the big do not disturb, neon yeah, sign. Exactly. I mean, I think the main thing is, um, you know, to to not freak out to not worry that we've somehow damaged them, to not see sex as a negative thing. You know, I work with a lot of adults who, it's important to remember that we learn about good sexual relationships from the people around us, including our parents. Um, A strong sexual relationship is often really good for relationship satisfaction. And it's often something that people bring to therapy and they say, my parents obviously had a good sexual connection 
And they somehow learned that without, without obviously knowing their parents were having sex or hearing about it. They picked up on that from something that their parents were doing or saying to each other, perhaps sexual currency. And they've learned that that's something that they also wish for their own relationships. And then I work with other people who say, you know, I think my parents possibly hated each other in that way. And they were very cold and there was no physical affection. And that can make it hard for people to demonstrate their own physical affection. So I think one of the things we need to reflect on as parents is what do we want our kids to learn about how to be in a relationship when they're older with regards to physical affection, sexual affection, all of that. And therefore, it's okay for them to see that. I don't mean we want them to walk in, but you know, inevitably that might happen. It might be awkward for all involved and you might need to explain there was nothing like violent going on because little mm -hmm. kids can get a bit, oh, yeah. what was that? But essentially what they're learning is there is another part to your relationship that is important and sacred and passionate and fun hmm. other than you as parents, which is not a bad lesson to learn. Yeah, it's true. Um, do you ever have people come to you, like women after they've had a baby and they're sort of struggling with their relationship with their body because it's such a Lots. big thing? Yeah. In fact, I would say um, not just women, but it, it does affect women more, but of all ages. So kind of concerns about body image are really the number one kind of distraction for women around um, being able to enjoy sex, being able to let go and enjoy sex. And, you know, like I said, it's not just women, and we see this increasingly in men as well, but particularly for women, um, thoughts about, you know, and this comes from objectification theory, which is the idea that we're socialised to kind of look, look at ourselves through the male gaze. So to be stood there naked imagining what another person is thinking of you naked and we know that women experience this more than men um and that comes across in sex all the time so what does my belly look like from this angle is anything wobbling you know what do my genitals look like up close um is anything sagging you know all of these things have i shaved my legs all, lots of these thoughts go around for women and of course that's heightened at key points in our life so even in pregnancy for some people. Oh, yeah. It can, be, it can be a time where you finally let go of a worry about what your belly looks like, and it can be a time when you feel deeply self-conscious about that, and post-birth. But there's also other key points, I guess, like menopause, where sometimes that can happen, and bodily focus kind of comes in a bit more. It's, it's, a, bit, it's, a, it's a little bit more challenging for all of us to, to work with that, because we're kind of constantly bombarded with it um, in our lives. It's, it's how we've learned, you know, we've got ideas about how bodies should look. But one of the things I really encourage people to do is to make sure that they diversify their kind of social media feed particularly mm. to see representation of different bodies. Because I think it's very easy, isn't it, just to see a particular aesthetic. Definitely. Um, and, and all that does is kind of teach us that that's yeah, what we should be aspiring to. So diversification of those things um and really trying to take a bit more of a kind of critical or political eye on our own thoughts and going is this actually what i believe um or is this just an, a kind of instinctive thought that i need to ignore and yes. let it drift away yeah and then the last thing that we know works is um and it's fascinating actually how much this works to improve our sex lives across the board but we've now realised that attention 
is a really crucial part of our sexual response. So where our attention is makes a difference to how turned on we get, how likely we are to orgasm, our desire, everything really, how much sensation we feel. And so when our attention is diverted to things like what do my thighs look like, mm. that limits our sexual pleasure or our chances of orgasm or whatever it might be. So if we work on our attention and we do that through things like mindfulness, so fascinating sex research about how people who practice mindfulness daily for six to eight weeks see a difference in sexual response. So not even anything to do with sex, wow. just getting good at moving your attention. Because those thoughts will pop up because we're socialized to think that thin is best and kind of, uh, you know, kind of white Eurocentric ideals of bodies, all of those things which we shouldn't be aspiring to, but we've been socialized into. So those thoughts pop up and really what we need to do is to try not to follow them. Yeah. Uh, that's quite hard, but mindfulness can really help. Well, I should imagine uh, letting go of attention, you know, you say about attention, that seems pretty crucial really because sometimes um being in the mood as it were would start from hours before you might find that you're mm -hmm. that every tension all the thoughts that go through your mind everything you've got to be able to just yes focus on the here and now so there's a sort of once you've probably got in the right headspace for it there must be like a mindfulness that comes with the the very act of it anyway of just yeah you're right being um, in the here and now there's some really um interesting things that happen in our brain when we get turned on which is that our attention becomes kind of single-minded so like single-tracked we get much more focused and that's really good if your attention is focused on what's happening sexually because yeah. we know that great sex is about losing yourself in the moment that's the kind of the definition of good sex that you almost you're not thinking yeah. you're just doing yeah um but it's not good if that single-mindedness comes about because you're aroused, but the attention is focused on, you know, what if I get pregnant? What if I don't get pregnant? Whatever it is that you're worried about. Mm. Um, so yeah, attention is, is it's a super interesting part of sex research. And what's great is it's something that we can all work with in ourselves, like with, you know, mindfulness is so good for all aspects of our kind of mental well-being. Um, but actually it's great for sex. Yeah, I can imagine that. As I said, it's like the sort of, yeah, just being able to focus on that one thing and let go of everything else. I mean, that's something we're being much better encouraged to do just generally, isn't it? And mm -hmm. stop, the, stop the kind of mind work. I suppose it's to do with the way we access information and the pace of life and everything. It's just that's so right. heightened at the moment. You can fill all your waking minutes with something if you want to. And we've sort of lost the art of even being bored, really. I, I totally agree. <laughs> and I am... Um, you know, one of the bits of research I did for the book when it was the bit about attention was around smartphone usage. And apparently in the UK, we use our smartphones for like three hours a day um, and every 12 minutes. I mean, I think I check mine more often than that, yeah. but something like every 12 minutes. And it does disrupt how able we are to be in the moment. It's good for us to practice that. But there's a really interesting kind of political feminist backdrop to this as well I think which is that when I'm working with heterosexual couples particularly you know what you were saying about having to clear your mind of everything we can't forget that that often in heterosexual relationships women carry the kind of mental load of household and family admin and that that in itself is distracting and so quite often women will say to me 
I, I want to get in a headspace where I can think about being sexual, but there's packed lunches to make, there's clothes that need putting away, there's like a school trip that I don't know if I signed the consent form for, the car needs servicing. And that mental load actually is a, it's more of a societal and gender politics issue which affects our sex lives. And it isn't really enough for partners to say, oh, you just tell me what needs to do to be done and I'll do it because you're still the boss of the house and being the boss carries with it a rate uh, you know a, a whole suitcase full of jobs doesn't it that you can't easily forget so you know I, I also you know encourage people to think about the role of those things in their life as well because all of that affects your attention affects your desire affects your ability to be interested in creating a situation where desire might be triggered and then when you're raising kids where you want them to think about that dynamic, assuming they're in a sort of a scenario like a sort of heteronormative dynamic, I guess. Yeah. Then you're thinking, I have to make, as the, as the mum, you're doing all those jobs and then thinking, well, I don't want them to think that I just do all those jobs. But at the same time, I have got to do all those jobs. <laughs> <laughs> a vicious circle. Yeah. <laughs> don't want them to see it, but I am doing everything. <laughs> or at least, you know, I will be you know capable like Richard sometimes jokes he's like you're making it so they're not gonna find like like they're, they're gonna be looking for this version of you that they might date that's like <laughs> sort of cross loads of stuff and I'm like <laughs> yeah but then you have I'm, I'm really open with them when I'm like struggling or I've forgotten things or yeah. you know the bits that haven't got done but it's interesting all that isn't it that pressure you put on yourself and I think that that mental load I was doing lots of nodding and I think it's just I sort of uh so I surprised myself by finding myself in a more traditional setup than I thought I would mm. as quite a sort of forward-thinking person. Mm. But I guess those societal messages take a little while to shrug off. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the things I always really encourage people to do when they're thinking about the impact of all of this on their sex life is not necessarily to feel as though they need to make any changes here. So it would be really normal for me to see someone, someone um, it's usually women, so we know that a third of women in the UK are concerned about their interest in sex. So that is massive. Wow, that's loud. A third of women of all ages are concerned that they're not interested in sex enough. That's from NatSell data. So if you just think about that, that's huge. That is. So, you know, someone comes in and they say to me, I never feel like sex, there's something wrong with me it's often quite a lot of backpedaling to, well, actually, your desire is quite normal and this is why. And let's look at all the contexts which influence it, everything from relationship dynamics to how you feel about yourself to your sexual history and how you learned about sex to um, the culture in your relationship to other factors around how women are socialised. Sometimes people get to a position where they're like, okay, so I have got all these other things on my plate, like raising young kids, like work like whatever else I'm trying to do in my life and at the current state of play I don't have the time to prioritize sex and that's okay and sometimes that it, it is okay it's about learning that there isn't a problem um, and you know sometimes that needs negotiating with a partner but sometimes the best position can be just knowing that you're not broken yeah and then you can decide, you know, I've got all of this stuff to do. Have I really got time to prioritise, like, making time for sex right now? Or can it just take a back seat for a bit? Yeah, that's true. And I think, 
I mean, from listening to you and, you know, if, you've, if you're someone that hasn't maybe been good at being communicative with your kids and let's say they're in their teenagers, are there ways to still rectify those things, do you think? Can you still kind of reset and change the dynamic of, of that communication in the family? We can always, always reset. We can always shift a culture and we can always do things in a kind of very gradual way that then over the long term brings us in a different place. And we can put some resources and things in there in the notes I guess from yeah. this episode for people to look at but also for people in their own sex lives you know it's never too late to be having the type of sex that you really want to be having and I work with lots of couples who've been together decades and not been having the sex they want for decades and can turn that around so for people that are listening that are thinking oh that ship has sailed we've really got out of the habit it's really got awkward we really I don't talk about it you know all of that it can really change and the first step to that I think is about learning more about it from the science not from media yeah that's very true yeah hooray for science again indeed and, and when it comes to your parenthood I mean do you feel like you're the sort of mother you thought you would be is it oh gosh. You imagined? did you always want to be a mum <laughs> oh I did yes um I don't know I think I'm probably not alone in the fact that I often feel like I'm not doing everything well enough so that constant, I should be doing more of this work, that work, I should be spending more time with the kids, I should be doing this with them. I think that's a really common feeling. Um, I, I guess motherhood is constantly surprising, isn't it? In that um, I think I probably expected, I mean, I'm quite patient, but, you know, I'm not 100% patient. You have to grow extra patience. Yeah, you, you do. Um, <laughs> you know, they can really push your buttons, can't they? And I don't know if I expected that. And... Especially when you recognise traits and you're like, oh my word, this oh, yeah. is like meeting me with this yeah. bit. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> my eldest is quite similar to me in some ways. And it really holds a mirror up, doesn't it? You're mm. like, oh, you're actually quite stubborn. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yes, where'd you get that from? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there are things that, um, there are always things I wish I was doing more of and there are always times I wish I was more patient. Um, but I guess no one really prepares you for that journey um, and no one really prepares you for the good bits either in terms of how good the good bits are. That's true. And just seeing them develop as people is wonderful, isn't it? I think as a psychologist, I had an idea that it was probably more about nurture than nature because obviously psychologists are all about nurture. And yes, I can clearly see the nurture, but I also am fascinated by how different they are and how much of it is about nature. That fascinates me. Yeah, me too, actually. I think I think that's endlessly fascinating. There's just this kernel of them that's just them from the get-go. Which yeah. Is, and you must be really excited about the next stage when they get to double figures. and Excited <laughs> slash nervous. It's almost like the proof will be in the pudding, won't it? Whether, you know, everything we've tried to do with them will support them or whether they'll just have a disastrous first few sexual experiences and I'll say, oh, no, I did it all wrong. But I guess that's parenthood, isn't it? Totally, it's parenthood. And also, it's not about the times when things don't go as planned. It's about how you deal with that, isn't it? Absolutely. And I picture you and your wife and your kids and all of their mates round the table all exchanging stories. Their friends are going to find you incredible. They're going to be like, <laughs> great, your mum's home. I've got something I want to talk to her about. I'm um, basically Jean Milburn from Sex Education. There you go. There you go. I think they're very lucky to have that. They might be mortified. We'll see. <laughs> you know what? That's an unexpected pleasure sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's 
talk about sex, baby. Mommy, Let's talk about you and... <laughs> I got my pyjamas on because I was feeling a bit snoogly. Is that okay? Um, I really enjoyed talking to Karen. And now uh, I'm a little distracted. I'm not going to lie. I want to thank Karen for giving me her time and her expertise. And I think she spoke so much sense about sex. Oh, yeah. But now I am in a slightly different headspace, if I'm honest. It's now Friday night. It's just before I go away on tour. I leave tomorrow evening after another day of rehearsals. So I'm having a little play with Mickey. And I've got my pyjamas on because I just tried on all my tour outfits. And then I put my pyjamas on afterwards. And Mickey, look at all these lovely toys we got. What have we got? Yeah. There's no one to see, darling. I'm just recording a voice. What is no, is no one there? That's right, you can't see anything. Look, my phone just looks dark. And that's just, that's just recording some sound. Yeah. Do you want to say hello? Yeah. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> yeah, Mickey just got some beautiful Wizard of Oz toys, didn't you, Mickey? So we're playing with Lion and Tiger. Sorry, not Lion, Tiger. Lion and Dorothy, Scarecrow, Tin Man and Wicked Witch. She's so evil. And he has a motorbike. A motorbike? Yeah. Let's put her on the motorbike, baby. Yeah, I know. Oh, I'm going to miss these guys when I go away. Who? Me. I'm going to miss you. Where? I have to go to work. Where to go? I'm going to... I've got a gig in Holmfirth on Sunday. Yeah. And then I go to Birmingham, Bexhill and Bath. And then I come home. Um, and then what would we say with... What, what will I say to you? What will you say to me? Yeah. you say, hi, Mum. Good to have you back. And then what will I say again? Will you say, welcome home, Mummy? And then? And then, I don't know. What do you want to say to me? Um, I love you. Oh, I love I wanna, you. I want to say I love you. I want to say I love you. Come back. Oh, Mickey, I will come back. No, I'm going to say I love you and cuddle you to come back. Oh, okay, Mickey. Okay. Oh, well, on that note, um, I'll see you. I'll see you next week from the road. All right, lots of love to all of you listening and big, big cuddles to Mick Mox, who's playing with me right now. Love you, Mickey. Bye. 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 Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.